This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, we have Tim Parati back, our old friend, Tim. Um, you remember him from his days at Deutsche, uh, the initial podcast co-host, so to speak. Um, he is now in Bozeman. And, you know, we just wanted to do a market update. There's a lot of stuff going on. The Fed will announce their uh, what the rate hike will be. And um, yeah, with that, let's let's get started. The first thing I'd like to ask Tim is you have a recent GDP report that suggests the U.S. contracted by one point four percent in the first quarter of 2022. Uh, However, there could be some nuances in the underlying data Um, over the first quarter. Consumption grew by two point seven. A lot of that went to services. Uh, there was still some s- flat spending on goods, but at the same time, a lot of this might be seasonal, right? With uh, supply disruptions and and the trade deficit that might have overshadowed some economic strength. So, you know, I, I guess, what are your thoughts on the nuances of this GDP number, and is it a harbinger for a recession? Thanks, Drew. You know, it doesn't feel like a harbinger for a recession, at least not this particular print, not to say there isn't a recession coming, but I don't think this print really tells you much. The market on the day that the print uh, came last week, it really shrugged it off pretty easily. And any economists that I've read uh, all really suggest that it it does come down to, as you said, uh, trade flows and the interruptions around trade flows. Now, with the dollar being as strong as it is, you can't imagine that uh, the import-export balance is going to change for the better anytime soon. But the inventory number was uh, a big drag. And I've never seen economists who can really do a very good job of predicting the inventory numbers on a quarter-over-quarter basis or even a year-over-year basis. And they tend to snap back. And they don't tend to be a terribly good harbinger of where we are. So my guess is we're still growing at something like 3 and uh, three to 4%. Uh, on a real basis, there's a tremendous amount of inflation um, that, that doesn't make that three to four percent feel that great. Uh, but if you look at where ISM still are, and when you look at where employment trends still are, when you look at housing trends still are, uh, it, there's nothing in the real world economy that suggests to me that we have already entered a recession. Yeah, I mean, and, and kind of to that point, right? The job market remains pretty tight. Um, In March, there were 4.5 million quits. And the difference between available workers and open jobs hit 5.6 million. That was another high. I mean, how do we explain these numbers so late into this recovery cycle? I mean, initially, I felt like one of the hypotheses was unemployment benefits, but those are long since gone. And, um, you know, there was there was always indications that that might not be the case. But um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, the only thing I would disagree with you on there is the word pretty strong. I mean, it is really still strong. I have no idea what the NFP will be. I think it's a terrible stat that we all obsess over. Those of you who have heard me speak, have heard me complain about the quality of the NFP. But the weekly stats that we get, the jolts data that you referred to in terms of quits, uh, the jobs open. I mean, these are vertical charts. Uh, And it tells you that the Fed sure as hell still has a whole lot of work to do. Because, you know, what, what, what drives PCE and CPI? It's largely labor and it's largely OER, uh, you know, housing, rent. Uh, and those two areas of the economy are still super, super strong. 
Yeah, for maybe some of our uh, newer listeners, like why, why don't we go through what your thoughts are on um, farm roll payrolls and uh, why why it's not all that great. Yeah, it's just it, it always amazes me that that's the stat that we freak out about every year when and people always say, oh, the ADP does a terrible job at predict. Well, the ADP is job isn't to predict uh, what the non-farm payrolls are going to be. And the fact is, is that uh, and sometimes in turns, you, the argument has been historically that the household number actually does a better job of indicating when you see turns. For my money, I'd rather just look at the, uh, the weekly unemployment stats. Uh, the problem with the NFP is that it gets revised and you'll get a, a you know, you'll get a 300,000 new jobs numbers that a year later may be revised by two or $300,000 by the BLS, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, uh, a year later. So it just, it's a low quality stat that for whatever reason, the pundits on CNBC or the hosts of CNBC like to make a big deal of, but there's a hell of a lot more or other economic data that really give us a better sense of the trend on things. Yeah, um, I mean, today is, you know, it's, it's the Fed rate hike day, right? Uh, as of now, we, we don't have the minutes, but, you know, I think there might be a 50 basis point rate hike. Uh, let's kind of discuss the ramifications of that and Fed policy. Uh, but I'd also be curious to know how much of this is priced into the market and, and what sectors might it be primarily priced into? Yeah. I mean, we are at the very beginning for the Fed. Uh, and the fact that people are already talking about when is the Fed going to lose their nerve, it ain't going to be today. <laughs> so we're going to get 50 bips today. They're going to give you some indication of uh, where they stand on quantitative tightening. And let's not forget, we've had one form or another of the Fed growing its balance sheet, quantitative easing, QE1, QE2, QE3, um, for a long time now, north of 10 years. And we're going to be in a whole new regime where instead of QE, it's going to be QT. So we'll get some indication of that today. The market, while it's down here as we speak on Wednesday morning before the Fed, everybody believes it'll be 50 bips. The, the Fed has done a good job of jawboning that into everybody's understanding. The only potential surprise, I think, could be the commentary around QT. In terms of to what degree is it priced into the market? Look, you're seeing the long end of the curves continue to break down or, you know, a, a bear steepener. All right. I mean, you know, you've got um, the 10 year through three as of yesterday, or did it actually go through three on Monday? So as long as that long end of the curve is moving up the way it is, it tells me that people feel like the Fed is still somewhat behind the curve. And, you know, I don't, I don't remember who said it originally, but, you know, I think it was around the Paul Volcker era is that, you know, central bankers don't go to heaven if they get behind the curve on inflation, right? <laughs> or or some, some version of that phrase. And, you know, Powell is behind the, uh, the, the curve on inflation. It's not even close. So they've got to, they have got to establish their credibility. Now, if inflation starts to roll six months from now after they've eased another 100 basis points or more, uh, we can revisit that. But I don't think you get any indication today um, that they are even going to indicate when they might lose their nerve or, or what it would be that they would be looking for uh, to start to slow down the pace. And I think the street is forecasting that you'll get to 275 on Fed funds. And I think that's probably still a good estimate. To what degree is it priced in? Look, the S&P is down about 14% this year. NASDAQ is down a little over 20%. 
But if you look at the risk areas of the market, uh, whether it's you know the biotech, the XBI index down 60%, or ARC down more than 70%, uh, as growth slows on stocks that are trading at 15 or 20 times revenues, multiples get crushed. So uh, you know earnings, the earnings season is still coming in pretty strong. But what you see in the earnings season is kind of 8%. We're about 70 70% of the way through uh, Q1 earnings season as we speak today. Earnings are about up about 8%, which is ahead, but earnings are always ahead. Earnings are always beat. But revenues are up 12%. So you see how inflation is impacting things. So you have inflation driving top line, but you've got cost pressures, labor pressures, um, uh, putting pressure on earnings growth. So I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, the numbers for, for the street on S&P earnings, which are right now at around 220, probably start to come in a little bit, but we're still at eight, 18 and a half, 19 times forward. Um, is that Does that tell you that we're pricing in a Fed that is going to have to slow down this economy meaningfully? Maybe, but it, it, you're still not looking at a at a value number. I mean, why, why, would, why shouldn't the especially as energy makes a greater contribution to the earnings and obviously uh, multiples are, are going to be lower there. But why would we still be above the 10-year average um, on earnings, On I'm sorry, on the multiple on earnings when we're in a totally new regime, as we've discussed, swapping from QE to QT? And don't forget the fiscal side of the ledger where we've added billions and billions and trillions of dollars, I stand corrected, uh, in fiscal spending, we are not going to get any increase or new spending uh, in 22, in 23, or 24. So, it, you know, risk assets have been absolutely crushed uh, and, and the market has come in a decent amount, you know, somewhere where you look at the S&P or NASDAQ, but it doesn't strike me that you've gotten to a point where there's been capitulation. And I would have to guess at some point in this process, you will see some capitulation. Let's talk about the fiscal side. Um, I mean, Build Back Better's died a thousand deaths and none of them have been glorious. Uh, I, I don't know where the chips bill stands, um, but that's that's would be a big you know investment in semiconductors that, that might be you know, supply based. Uh, it, and, and, and additionally, it seems like, you know, the only big spend we're doing right now is to uh, you know, help supplement uh, Ukrainian resistance. Mm -hmm. Domestically, there just hasn't been a lot of spending. Uh, I mean, what, what's the outlook on, you know, in terms of the capital? Uh, are we drawing down? Um, you know, it, it appears we are. And, and, and what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's no surprise. The Republicans are not going to um, allow any meaningful new spending. We're in May of the, of the midterm election, so you're not going to get anything for the rest of this year. And Manchin continues to be the most powerful guy in Washington. Mm -hmm. And what Manchin has been clear on Build Back Better is if, you know, his last statement was, sure, I'll, I'll do a big I'll Build Back Better uh, plan, but it's going to have to be 2x savings uh, in revenue cutting versus any new spending. So obviously that's not a stimulus bill. So, so you're not going to get anything uh, before the midterms. I, I disagree. I, I, I agree with consensus that the House probably goes um, goes uh, to the Republicans. Unclear on the Senate, but it doesn't really matter to the degree, if for, for the purpose of this conversation, 
in all indications of that, you are going to have less spending and tighter budgets for at least the next three years. Yeah, well, it's almost like we'll have policy paralysis, yeah. which, which I, I would argue we've seen with a level three chamber. So I, I don't know. I, it's interesting how much, you know, the streets price that in or, or what they might be more bullish on. But I just don't see much more coming out of Washington uh, regardless. So, no, I, I, I don't either. Uh, you know, you might see uh, pieces of legislation that are, are bipartisan around energy mm -hmm. uh, in an effort to bring energy prices down. But I, I really don't believe that it is government policy that is affecting uh, where energy prices are. If you look back to the, to, uh, the first quarter uh, of, of this year in terms of E&Ps in the United States, if you look across the Permian uh, you know, or Bakken, uh, Haynesville, whatever, you look at all the major E&Ps, none of them, none of them are adding rigs. And, you know, it's not a, it, you hate to use a word like cartel, but there is a very good understanding among public company ENPs that we are not, we are going to be disciplined on capital spending. Investors don't want the old energy regime where in hot markets you add a lot of capacity. There is zero new capacity and it's all about discipline and it's all about energy company executives listening to their investors who are saying, we don't want CapEx. We want you to give us our money back and you keep going sideways. And I think that that is another pressure point that you're going to see for the Fed. I mean, you know, it's not a, we talked about OER, we talked about labor, but the commodity side, I mean, you look at the fertilizer side, you look at what impact that has on food, you look at gasoline and distillate and all across the oil market, there is no indication that we are going to have a meaningful change uh, in commodity prices anytime soon. So there is a lot of pressure on this Fed, and I don't think there's anything that on the fiscal side or on the policy side you're going to see uh, that really makes a difference to energy prices and the energy regime that we have right now. Yeah, I guess I'll bring up the stagflation word I have on the last couple of guests we've had on this podcast, but be curious to see your thoughts. Uh, I mean, obviously, inflation is not running as hot as it was in the 80s, but you know, stagflation on people who are alive then, it's still very much on their minds. And what might, what conditions might evaluate us to say, look, we're in a stagflationary environment at this point? Well, I think we could see significantly slower GDP growth and still have a pretty tight labor environment. And, you know, we're starting to see labor unrest. You're starting to see unions at places like Starbucks, for God's sakes. Uh, so I think we could be in a, a slower growth environment where you still see uh, some of these inflation pressures, whether it's on the commodity side. Look, the housing side, there's a lot of studies out there that suggest that we have fundamentally underbuilt uh, the housing stock since, uh, you know, the Great Recession, 2008, 2009. So that suggests to me, again, that we could have a slower economy uh, and you still have the inflation pressure there. And we don't have much in the way of immigration. We have the demographics that are pushing down the actual size of the labor force. While the participation rate has come up somewhat, it hasn't come up a ton. Yeah. And you just look at the components that go into GDP, which is basically workforce growth and productivity growth. And uh, we don't have meaningful workforce growth. And with the amount of labor pressure that we have, you certainly don't have productivity growth. 
That suggests to me that the Fed has got to take the economy down to a very, very slow growth rate or negative growth in order to break the back of inflation. So, you know, stagflation is such a hyperbolic word. It scares people. It makes everybody say, oh, that, that guy must be some kind of sky is falling chicken little Cassandra to talk about stagflation. But there's a hell of a lot of evidence out there. Um, I, hell, I would make the argument that it's, it, it's incumbent on the people that don't believe that you're going to be in a, in a stagflation type environment um, than, than the argument that, yeah, we could be looking at something that is stagflationary. In other words, inflationary environment with housing, with labor, with commodities in a non-growing GDP environment. You know, um, you kind of mentioned the fact that COVID might have an element to play. I mean, you saw nearly a million people pass away, uh, leaving, I think, their descendants on average with, with 50K or something like that. It's and, about 48, 50,000. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, what, what might that affect have played in just the cash influx? You know, you know, this is kind of a pet theory of mine. Um, but you think about it. If, if there are a million excess deaths over the last two years, and there are certainly many people who would argue that that's a conservative number and the number may be closer to a million and a half, uh, well, that's a massive wealth transfer on, on, on the level of as much as $50 billion. And you're talking about money that it doesn't necessarily change, you know, the money supply numbers, it, it, you know, like M2 and M3, like you saw the big spike as we, with all the government assistance that we had over 20 and 21. But it does make an impact on taking money that is stagnant to money that is in the system and driving, uh, you know, boat purchases. You want to buy a you want to buy a two hundred thousand dollar boat right now? Good luck. You're going to get in line. Guys at boat shows. Some of the manufacturers. A friend of mine was telling me that he was at a boat show and the manufacturers are only keeping their spots this year to keep their they're only signing up to keep their spots this year because they don't even have inventory to sell. So I do think that it does have something to do, the wealth transfer through the excess deaths that is driving some of the housing market right now, some of the demand for, for cars, for used cars. And I do think it's having a uh, inflationary impact. All right, great. Well, that's, um, that's all the questions I really have uh, today, Tim. Maybe we'll end on like uh, what sectors are you kind of bullish on, you know, in, in light of a market correction that's been sub 10% this year. You know, I'm probably firmly in consensus on that where um, uh, energy is, is still to me the most attractive sector. There is such incredible capital discipline uh, as I discussed. And I do think that there is a level of cooperation among the ENPs and the majors uh, in the United States uh, that is going to keep even in a slower growth environment uh, cash flow extremely high. It's going to continue to get returned uh, to investors. So I like commodity markets generally. I think that the uh, the ag space, ag tech, uh, commodities, fertilizers. I think all of those names could stay buoyant for a long time. As I say, even in a in a much slower growth environment. Great. Well, uh, thanks for your time, Tim. Um, and for all our viewers, thanks for your likes and subscribes. And we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. 
Wealthdesk does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. Wealthdesk does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.